Hey, it's Phil Simon. My new book is out now. It is called The Nine, The Tectonic Forces Reshaping the Workplace. It's my best work to date, and I hope that you'll check it out. Thanks. And uh, at the very end of the song, uh, the song goes, uh, and in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. You remember that? <laughs> yes. Uh, is that true? Conversations about collaboration, episode 48. Rock star and remote oracle Darren Murph joins me. He serves as the head of remote, cool title, for GitLab. We talk about organizational alignment, Slack, intentionality, the importance of documentation, culture, software development, talent shows, and much more. Let's get it on. Darren, where does this pod find you? I am doing well. I am at home in North Carolina, USA. I'm sensing a bit of the Southern drawl. I can't help it, man. It's summertime, sweet tea, barbecue. You know where to find me. <laughs> Well, we do know where to find you. And when you started at GitLab, that you were working from home. So in a way, not much has changed, right? From a process standpoint, not much has changed. But all around those processes, quite a bit has changed from the humanity standpoint. Yeah. Well, I definitely want to get into that with you. But one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on is that I've never talked to an actual Oracle before. Thank you for that. I have uh, CNBC to thank for that. So they hosted myself, Sid, and Professor Raj at Harvard Business School, a phenomenal, phenomenal person. And we were on a panel a couple of months ago, and they deemed us the oracles of remote work, which, you know what, I'll take it. I'll do my best to, to, uh, to live up to that title. It's funny that you mentioned that. My friend Scott Birkin, who wrote a book a couple of years ago called The World Without Pants about when he worked at Automatic, uh, was on CNBC talking about one of his previous books, and they introduced him as the provocateur. So for a while, I started calling him that. How do you get away from it, right? Yeah, lean into it. It's uh, rule number one of comedy. Yeah. Self-deprecation, just lean into it, own it, becomes personal branding. It's good stuff. Yeah. Let's jump right into Slack. Uh, in doing my research for this, I was really surprised at first to hear you say that you archive or delete technically, I suppose, different things, messages after 90 days. And initially, I said to myself, why would you do that? But then as I listened to your explanation, it actually made sense. Say more. Yeah, for a lot of companies that are transitioning, you may be tempted to jump into a bunch of new tools to force new workflows as you're transitioning from office-first mentality to remote-first mentality. And there is value in that. But there is also value in using common tools in uncommon ways. Slack is a great example of that at GitLab. We expire our Slack messages after 90 days for two reasons. One, it forces work into a much more transparent tool, which is GitLab, the platform. The entire company funnels all of their work through GitLab issues and epics. We organize and coordinate and collaborate using GitLab. And quite frankly, if you force work to disappear in Slack after 90 days, it's a great forcing function to remind people to do work in a more transparent platform. So then I get asked, well, what is Slack useful for if you don't use it for work? Well, it creates a great informal communication tool. So if you can't use Slack for work, it becomes the replacement for the office water cooler, 
if you will. So we have topical channels on hiking, cooking, music making, video gaming, parenting, you name it. All of these sub-communities where people can just be people. And this is a perfect place for these conversations to happen. You want parents to be able to get together and share hilarious stories about parenting, but also heartwarming tales about parenting and asking for help if there's disabilities and things like that. It's amazing what happens when you set up the atmosphere for informal communication. I find that fascinating. Um, You take something that's informal, but then you ultimately formalize it. Right. In the form of the they're very famous. Is it still 5000 pages or has it grown? You know, uh, we are experiencing exponential growth on the handbook. I looked recently. It's over 13000 pages. Ask me again in a month and I'm certain it will be more. That is phenomenal. But it was really well laid out with particularly with the headings to make it easy navigable. And when you and I were scheduling this, I know you gave me a compliment about the self-service nature of it. And again, to me, that's totally intuitive. But take us out of our little worlds. And there are folks who just won't use Calendly or insert name of scheduling tool or a form. They want to do it over email. Um, Something tells me that if you acted the latter way at GitHub, you'd last all about 15 minutes. Yeah. So GitLab, not GitHub. It happens all the time. It happens all the time. And we have lots of great friends at GitHub. All, All good. Yeah. It's one of those things where you want to make your processes as asynchronous and as self-serve as possible. Because what that does is it creates more time and space for incubation, innovation, the human things. And really that's at its core, what you want to enable. You want to async as many processes as you can to enable more time for synchronous communication, running into each other, building culture, building rapport. You don't want to waste that time on work. And so that's why we document so much we want our operating manual uh, to be written down because it gives people something to look at, an anchor point, but it also gives people a baseline on how to improve it. The reason why the GitLab handbook is over 13,000 pages now is the iteration that happens every single day. And it's a lot easier to iterate on something, to make something better, to go from point A to point B, if you know what point A is. And so the rigor around documentation is the foundation for that. That strikes me as fascinating. I've said this for years when companies want to do, and I hate the phrase digital transformation, but they want to become, let's say they want to use data better. They look at what Netflix could do or Google or Facebook for good or bad. And I try to explain to them, they didn't go from zero to Google overnight. It's taken them in some cases two decades. And I know GitLab has been around for a long time. So I can see how some people might say, well, look, there's no way we could document 13 pages, never mind 13,000. But again, you didn't start this on a Monday and go live on a Wednesday, right? You're talking about years and years of iterations. For sure. And it does feel daunting, but something as rigorous as an operating manual for your company, a company handbook, it's something that starts very simply, started as an FAQ, started with, with policies, things that are probably already written down. And I've actually met with a leader who made a remote first transformation coming out of COVID. So COVID happened and the executive team said, you know what, we're going to make remote first a part of our culture. They made a universal unwavering commitment to it at the executive level. They had very little in the way of existing documentation beyond conventional policy that would be required. They hired someone to essentially be their chief documentarian, to shadow the organization, to add taxonomy, to add 
rhythm and routine to how documentation should happen. In fact, they documented how people could add documentation to scale that effort across the organization. And within six months, within six months, they had 90% of what they'll need written down. Hmm. And then that last 10% is going to be ever changing. Now that the foundation is built, now you just work on it iteratively and you build on it and you build on it. And it kind of goes back to that saying of the tree. The best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The next best time is today. And so for leaders who are grappling with this, just start. You don't have to get it perfect overnight. Remote is not a binary switch. You don't go from zero to 100 immediately. It is an iterative journey. I would actually encourage you to hire a leader and scope out a one or two year plan with quarterly milestones, much more digestible, much more realistic, and make sure that documentation and a rigor around what that looks like from a taxonomy perspective is a key part of it. You've talked before about some of the values there. Specifically, you can't know everything and that you want to have a blameless type of meeting or I don't know if I'm getting that exactly right. Um, Talk a little bit more about that because I can see how some people might want to say, well, we don't want to go live with only 90%, very waterfall type mentality, right? SLDC versus what you're talking about in the DevOps slash agile world of doing things in two week sprints, right? Knowing that it's not going to be right. You're not going to get to everything. It seems very consistent what you're doing culturally versus basically the GitLab business model. Indeed. So the Journal of Organizational Design wrote a really amazing piece on GitLab about working from anywhere. And one of the conclusions they came to is that GitLab, the company, runs its people and its culture like the Git technology process. It's almost exactly the same. So we have mirrored how we run culture and people from a very proven technology process. And there's a lot to be gained from that. And really, when you think about culture, it really comes down to two things, how you work and the camaraderie that you build. And a lot of companies don't give enough voice to the how we work portion of that. You might think, oh, what's the big deal? I'm going to use a tool that no one else is using. I'm just kind of break, break free from whatever the guidelines are. It's just easier for me. Brick by brick, that is breaking down culture. You need a agreed upon way, a formalized way to communicate. You even need to formalize informal communication. You need to give people guidelines and guardrails because that discipline and that cohesion helps build culture. It removes communication silos. It increases transparency. And transparency is one of GitLab's core values. I would say for leaders making this transition, one of the first things you should do is a values audit. If you look at the GitLab values page, we have six core values, but it does not stop there. There are thousands of words underneath of common terms like iteration, collaboration, and transparency that explicitly describe how those values can be lived out in a location agnostic way. What you are attempting to do is convert anything that may have been tacit knowledge or implied knowledge, the unspoken rules of culture, into explicit. If you have anything in your remote organization, which is only tacit, that is a guarantee that there will be chinks in the proverbial armor. That is a weak point where someone might not be in the right meeting to absorb this via osmosis. You have to convert it to explicit. You mentioned a few of those sub-values, blameless problem solving. We explicitly detail how to solve problems blamelessly. There's another sub-value called it's impossible to know everything. Some might say that's obvious, but you cannot assume that it's obvious. Obvious things are only obvious to whom they are obvious. So you write down, hey, it's okay to admit that it's impossible to know everything. And that puts you in a great place 
to solve problems without blame. We have a lot of these. Low level of shame is another one that I lean on all the time. We encourage people to share snippets, ideas very early and often and get feedback on them in their most infantile state instead of waiting for something to be polished. Because let's be honest, is anything ever truly polished? No ego is another one that is phenomenal. Uh, If you're interested or curious about org design and building culture by explicitly documenting values, the GitLab values page is an amazing place to start. I can see how some people would agree with that in concept, right? But you're talking about a, if not unprecedented, certainly remarkable level of transparency. But by making those values explicit in this kind of depth, right? Clearly, this is once this wasn't someone's weekend hackathon project if it's 13,000 pages. Not only, I would think, would you build a more cohesive culture, but you could potentially deter people from even applying, never mind working there, who go, whoa, this is just too different, right? God bless if it works for them, but I'm used to a more traditional management function. We are very explicit about laying out our goals and our strategy and our culture very publicly. In fact, one of the first elements to the handbook that I added when I joined GitLab was a section entitled, quote, what's it like to work at GitLab? I wanted to very succinctly answer that question so that people who were considering applying knew exactly what they were getting into before they even applied. And this purifies the recruiting pipeline and it makes sure that people self-select into this way of working. It is a unique way of working. I think it's increasingly not as unique as the world becomes more distributed and the world is forced to become more remote fluent. Some of these things will become common knowledge because they're being practiced in more organizations, which is phenomenal. The mass proliferation of this, the rising tide lift all boats, it's going to be a better future for everyone. But you want to be clear with that because look at what the alternative is. Let's conceal our strategy. Let's not be transparent. Okay, so you recruit someone into your team, they have one understanding of what flexibility and collaboration looks like, and it takes them six months to realize that their vision and the actuality are completely incongruent. You're doing no one any favors. So while the thought of transparency may seem a bit daunting, if you've lived in a world where communication silos are the norm, I would argue that this is just good business. All remote forces GitLab to do things that most businesses should be doing anyway. We just have to do them much earlier and with much more rigor because we don't have a physical office as a crutch. I would agree, but I could at the same time see people from, again, more traditional environments saying, well, let's adopt some of those principles. We don't want to go that far. Let's get a little bit pregnant. I'm reminded of companies that agree in concept with agile methods like Scrum, but say, well, we need the waterfall too. So they come up with, and this is a horrible moniker, agile fall. And I say, all right, so let me know if that works for you, because you're talking about completely inverted methodologies and you can't really just put them together. I think what's really important to recognize here is to just call out how significant the change is that we're living through. This is a cataclysmic change transferring from an office-first way of working, in the knowledge working space at least, to a remote-first way of working. This is not as simple as just saying, we're going to allow our company to work from home, but we're still going to do things the way we've always done them. If you want to truly embrace the remote-first environment, you have to wholesale do things differently. We are entering completely uncharted territory. You have to build a value system that takes advantage 
of a virtual distributed workforce. It's not necessarily exactly the one that got you to where you are in a co-located space. I've even seen companies retool their learning and development. They're entering new curriculum. A great example is how to be a great remote manager. A seasoned leader in a co-located space might need to learn some things about the nuances of remote management. These aren't naturally intuitive. There are some organizations that are doing internal classes on how to be a great writer. In a more distributed world, you will have to lean on storytelling and writing in a way that you never had to do when you could just verbalize your way through life or a career in an office. These are net new skills. It is a big deal. I think the global narrative has focused on the proximity of where people are. The return to office storyline is a great example of this. We should focus so much less on the day that a deadbolt is turned one way or the other, and so much more on completely auditing our workflows and pressure testing them and asking ourselves, does this work? If some of my team is on an airplane or in a hotel room on the other side of the world or in their bedroom, because that is the new business reality. I'm again, hurting my head, nodding in agreement. Uh, When I think about the initial reaction, and you've made this point for in previous podcasts and interviews, um, we didn't have a lot of time to prep, right? It was just workplaces are closed, work from home, do what you can. So in many instances, speaking of business processes, we replicated something that wasn't exactly ideal. So we took an in-person meeting and made it a Zoom meeting. Okay, um, but isn't this a massive opportunity? Something tells me I know the answer here to take a look at a legacy business process, given this new tech, given the fact that people may be working halfway across the world and do something fundamentally better. If we, as in the collective workplace society, invested half the effort in embracing new ways of working, as we are trying to figure out how to shoehorn ancient ways of working into this amazing new opportunity without the burden of walls, we would be a lot further ahead in this journey. But it is so jarring and people generally will approach fear uh, or approach change with a fear-based mindset. So just getting people to look at things through the lens of opportunity is challenge number one. I'm telling a lot of leaders right now, their core job is to be the chief storytelling officer. Paint the picture, paint the vision of what a future could look like if you are intentional about remote work, just to shake people from what they're currently experiencing, which is crisis-induced work from home. So forced collaboration, when everyone's in their home, they might not have the best broadband, they might not have the best family situation, they might not have the right tools, technologies, or learnings. This is a suboptimal type of situation. In a proper remote landscape, you actually build the right infrastructure for what you need. I've shared this analogy elsewhere, but I think it bears repeating. There are a lot of leaders who have built railways and they've put their work as rail cars. And this has worked for a really long time. COVID comes along and knocks all the rail cars off and suddenly everyone is collaborating in their own boat, but they're still on the railway that was built a hundred years ago. So leaders are saying remote doesn't work for me or to carry the analogy, sailing is terrible. But the truth is, if they would invest the effort in replacing the railway with a waterway, sailing would not be terrible. And it really paints the picture of how much of the onus is on leadership and on the organization to set their collaborators up for success. You cannot continue to use the infrastructure that you've always used with people in entirely new places, with entirely different paradigms, and frankly, a contingent of new hires who are joining the world who have only ever done things virtually, virtual commerce, virtual friend making, virtual entertainment. 
we have to evolve the workplace infrastructure to meet the realities of the workers today. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And when it comes to doing things in a virtual way, but trying to build the culture, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about that talent show that you put on. Oh, which one? <laughs> I love how you answer a question with a question. Uh, how about the most recent one? Because I haven't, you know, I haven't cyber stalked you, but I did enough research to know that, you know, you've gone beyond the traditional happy hour. Uh, I think I was reading one about juggling or cooking uh, in someone's kitchen, but pick a story. Yeah, indeed. The talent show was amazing. So instead of just doing a conventional happy hour, we had this talent show and we had some healthy competition. We said, you know, there's going to be prizes for first, second, and third. We're going to get a voting system in. And we, we had an agenda attached where people could sign up and put their name down. And yeah, we had a few people that uh, cooked fajitas and may have flipped some things in their kitchen and caught them with incredible grace. We may have had someone bring their dog on and use sign language, which was fascinating. Uh, we had a few people bring their books and other kind of creative measures. It just goes to show that if you formally design this, as in put some effort into building a talent show, you can accomplish a lot more around culture building and team bonding and getting to know each other versus just putting an hour on the calendar and, and asking everyone to, to come show up. But I also want to point out that's a, that's a boring solution. That's another sub-value at GitLab. That's a boring solution and a gentle iteration on a pretty common practice, which is a, a Zoom happy hour. But there's another way to look at culture, and that is the belief that workplace culture is largely built from outside of work. And so if you are a team leader and your team is totally burnt out on these Zoom happy hours, no matter the iteration, I would say give everyone that last hour of the Friday and say, go out into your community and do something meaningful to you. Because if you scale this across 65 countries, now you have 65 different communities in the world that are being inched forward by your colleagues. And then when you all come back to work on Monday, the interactions you have are incredibly enriched by the fact that you were empowered to go do things. There is no more small talk about weather or sports. I mean, nothing against weather and sports, but it integrates the reality, the humanity. It really takes advantage of remote and it looks at the, the dynamism and the beautiful tapestry of having people in different places. But you have to empower that. There's a level of psychological safety that comes with that. Uh, and hopefully GitLab's documentation of how we do, do this becomes a blueprint for other companies who are uh, making that transition. Right, but you're walking the talk. It isn't just a cool document with a lot of uh, aspirational language, for lack of a better term. Uh, I was reading about how you will pay employees uh, co-working expenses, but you don't mandate. right? So if you want to get out of home because, of, to your point, you don't have ideal broadband, it's not a great family situation, or you just want to get out of your house, you're, you're giving employees a lot of choice. That's a great one to bring up because a lot of leaders right now feel very burdened that there's only two places to work home or the office. And so they're wrestling with this reality that they, they don't really need the office anymore. Their company's just had an amazing year. They've spent 18 months proving that they can do more remotely than they ever thought possible. But there's a subset of surveyed people who say, hey, I need the office back open because of whatever reason. But there's this vast third space in the middle, whether that's existing networks like WeWork, whether that's new solutions like Cody, they're repurposing homes to be communal workspaces during the day. Just an amazing amount of innovation happening in this space to give people the ability to work outside of their home, but not in a company-owned office. 
this will explode coming out of COVID because the product market fit has never been better. And it's very inclusive as, a, as an employer to say, we're going to support you wherever you want to work. And that way, if somebody lives in a one-bedroom studio, they don't have to work there all day. Or if they live on the side of the mountain, they don't get broadband, they can choose to commute down to a co-working space that has it. And again, this adds to the dynamism and the geographic diversity that you can foster in a truly embraced remote culture. And the results are there, right? I was reading that GitLab's turnover is 15 to 20%, which for a tech company in any environment is pretty damn small. What we've seen, we put out a remote work report at the beginning of this year, second year running, and it's been phenomenal to look at the AB because one was done before COVID and, and one was done in the thick of it. We surveyed 3,900 people around the world, and we found a lot of amazing anecdotes there. Uh, and it, it really all boiled down to the more that an employer makes me feel supported as a remote worker versus just allowing it, it's going to make me more compelled to stay here longer and to invite more people to come and work with me. And uh, there's a big difference between allowed and supported. And when you do things like supporting reimbursements for co-working spaces, that's an amazing signal to send that says we support you no matter where you want to work. Good stuff, Darren. I'll get you out here on this. What book are you currently reading? I am reading Workquake by Steve Cadigan. That is LinkedIn's first chief HR officer. And he just put out his first book, Workquake. It is a phenomenal read. He scaled LinkedIn in its earliest days, but now he has the perspective of COVID. And so for leaders who are really looking to rock their own worlds and challenge preconceived notions, dig into that book. If you want a second read, check out the Anywhere Operating System by Luke Thomas. He's the CEO and founder at Friday. It's a phenomenal read if you're looking to build the nuts and bolts required for that remote infrastructure, the proverbial waterway, as I mentioned earlier. Good stuff, Darren. Thanks for taking the time. It's a pleasure, Phil. Take care. Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However, if you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, then how can you not? Please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time. Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However, if you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, then how can you not? Please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time.